0: This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. If you have your Bible, I just want to share one verse to start out, and that's 1 Peter 5.8. Now, I've been told I've got to stay behind here, because if I move to the right or left, I cease glowing, which I don't see how that happens because I have my own built-in glare system here, uh, but, uh, so, uh, but I'll, I'll try to stay behind here. But uh, does anybody know what 1 Peter 5, 8 says? And as we go through this, this is going to be a, a lecture, not a message. And honestly, we are live streamed, but if you have a question, would you ask it? Raise your hand. It's just us here. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll try to repeat it so those that are on live stream can hear it. But uh, would really enjoy it better, I think, if you would participate. If you have a question, if uh, if I lose you, I apologize. I, I uh, uh, it's not because I'm saying anything profound. It's just I'm not saying it right. Uh, so uh, I just uh, let's we'll, we'll get through this as best we can. But First Peter five eight says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about." seeking whom he may devour. I am not confident we understand the situation of our culture. I'm not confident we understand really how dire our culture is. Now, I do not want to be a pessimist. I don't want to be a doomsdayer. Honestly, I do feel that at times, as dispensationalists, we can become very pessimistic. Why? Because we're looking forward to the Lord's return. And we know that times will get worse and worse and worse, and logically then you would say, hey, let it get worse. That means he's coming back. But we still have work to do here. There's still much for us to accomplish And we still have that instruction to be vigilant, to be watchful. Why? Because we have an enemy out there who walks around wanting to devour us. So I want, if you have your notes there, the first blank there is I want to point out, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson this evening. Because I really want to, as we we say in the military... We want to prep the battlefield, okay? We wanna, I want to show where we're fighting. We're going to talk about what the battlefield looks like. And the first thing we're going to look at is this, what's called the crisis of secularism. Secularism. In his book, Already Gone, Ken Ham gives this startling statistic. Seventy percent of teens who grow up in church leave church within a year of moving out of the home. 70% of our teens that grow up in church, they leave church once they move out of the home. Why do you think our church kids stop attending church? I think some find the beliefs of the church to be irrelevant, inaccurate, unauthoritative in other words what they're hearing in church just doesn't make sense to them and it could be one of two reasons one because the church is teaching false doctrine or two those things are spiritually discerned and they can't understand them that means our church kids are what they're not saved they kind of grow up in church Just believing they're Christians. But, and they may even make a profession of faith. You know, when you were four, you did it. See, I wrote it in your Bible. But they kind of grow up and they just grow into Christianity. It never is theirs. So that's one reason. I think another reason some find the church itself to be irrelevant. Well, the church is just, I mean, it's not teaching wrong, it's not teaching false doctrine. There's some safe people in it, but it's just kind of, they're not doing anything in their world around them. They just exist. The four walls here are, are keeping them in, and, and we're just holding on, waiting uh, with our heads in the sand, and just talking about the politics in the world and the impeachments and all that's going on in the world and how horrible it is, but we're not impacting our world. We're not doing much. And so the church just is going along with the, with the tide of, a, of our culture. So my question is, do we really even know the situation? And I think, as we look at it, I, I think I'm going to paint a pretty bleak picture this evening. And I hope so, but not to the point where you leave here and say, you know what, I really need to go to Pastor Radice's post-traumatic stress class now, how to deal with it, because I am going to give you the trauma tonight. All right, this is the traumatic truth. I think it has to do with our culture, I, and I want to look at how our, where we are in the 21st century. 2021. I'm still waiting for Y2K to happen. Uh, I work on a ship, and uh, we have sailors on board who were not alive when 9-11 happened. We're fighting a war on terror that is completely, it's, it's, they don't understand. It. We, you know, and I'm finding, and I'm not that old. I was accused just the other day of, I said, hey, I want to, I was talking to a sailor. and I was like, yeah, I'm trying to get home. I've got a, a son who has not met his grandparents. And she says, you have not met your grandchild? <laughs> and I said, I was wearing a mask. I said, the mask must add, you know. 20 years. I said, now, get out of my office. I'm not, I'm not a grandfather. And so I said, this is my family. And I showed a picture of my family. And she looks at it and she says, those all look like your daughters, to which Kendall was grateful for, you know. And so, uh, so I've been accused of being a grandfather. I said, no, that, 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 that's my wife. And she's like, nah. I was like, no, it is. So uh, we moved on. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I find it, it's harder and harder to relate to the culture that I'm, that I'm even on on a ship. I mean, they talk, say things, and I think I'm pretty young, and, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, like, I, you know, I, I think I, I'm energetic, but I'm starting to lose touch. But why? Because even in the 20, almost 20 years I've been in the Navy, that, that Navy has changed from when I came in. Our culture has changed so abruptly. But let's look at our culture, what it is. Our, now, our culture... We like to say these pagans out there, but they're not pagan. Our culture is not pagan, but neither is it Christian, okay? It's not pagan, it's not Christian. Our culture has been secularized, and what do I mean by that? It's become this way through the progression of stages of Western man. Now, if you'll see on your handout, there's this arrow, and just think of that as a timeline. That's my greatest artist's rendition of this timeline. It began kind of in Western in our Western thought, in our Western way of thinking, uh, there was, it started with mythology, and we can go back. We're going to kind of look at this from three different perspectives. We're going to look about, at it from a very philosophical perspective or a religious perspective, if you could say, and then we're going to look at it from a movement's perspective, and then we're going to look at it from some men who really influenced the way we think today. And I hope it all makes sense at the end. But we can go back and we can say, well, there's this idea of mythology kind of influenced our culture. And mythology is literally just a collection of myths, especially belonging to a particular religious or cultural tradition. Now, in your best judgment, in your thinking there, where would we say mythology really influenced our culture? Hmm. Where do we get our culture from? Where did... Western thought. Where did was it born? There we go. Greece, right? We have the, 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 that classic philosophy, and we have guys, and we'll, we'll mention some other names later, but we'll got at Socrates, and Plato, and Aristotle. And really, when they were bringing their philosophy, in fact, Socrates, he was killed, he was executed, because he did what? He defied the God. Little g and plural. He defied the gods. And so he was executed, forced to drink hemlock. And Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they, they, they began this, this classical philosophy really to combat this mythology. Now, we would never say, well, we believed in mythology, but as time went by, mythology gave way to Theology in our Western culture. Theology, of course, is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. And that lasted for about a thousand years. And then our theology began to give way. There's a lot of reasons, and I'm just hitting the tops of it here. We're not going to go into how and why all this happened, but theology gives way to this idea of philosophy or metaphysics, where now the inquiry into the first principles of things including abstract concepts such as, why are we here? How do we know what we know? What causes things? Who am I? What is my identity? What is time? What fills space? Those are the deep questions that were beginning to be asked, and that Brought in this, 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 uh, this new ushered in, I should say, this new religion, really, of science. Science. And if you look at our Western culture, we're not religious. Everything revolves around science. Has that not smacked us in the face in the last year? You can't argue with anybody. Because it's all, well, you just don't believe science. And do you know what, what, what does the word science mean? That awkward silence that's on the live stream now as we wait. What does science mean? Anybody want to guess? It's simple. It's knowledge. It is knowledge. In fact, we have the word Conscience, and there's tucked that word, science. If you were to study theology and you talk about, we like to use that word predestination, but the theological word is prescience or to know beforehand. Pre science, if you wanted to pronounce it like that. Prescience. Science, it is knowledge, and that's where we are. So while on one hand, we, we've, we're not pagans. That's a pre-Christian phenomenon built on the foundation of mythology and the sacralization of the realm of nature, worshiping nature. It is pre-scientific. It's extra-biblical, representative of the creative imagination of primitive humanity where they would worship the the creation, not the creator. And, and, And those scientists look back at that primitive pagan thought and they say, we're no longer in that. And we're moving now towards this ability to be able to think for ourselves. But it reminds me, even as those pagans, remember they professed themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and forfeited beasts and creeping things. They worshipped the creation and not the creator. That's paganism. Secularism, though, is what we're dealing with today. It is now, if paganism was pre-Christian phenomenon, paganism, or, or secularism is post-Christian phenomenon. I don't know if it bothers you. It maybe it should, but I'm going to start referring to a lot of things in our culture as we really are post-Christian. We do not live in a Christian nation. We do not live in a Christian world. We are in this post-Christian phenomenon that makes a conscious rejection of a Christian worldview and holds that all possible knowledge is restricted now to the temporal. In other words, everything we know is what we experience, what we can sense through our senses, That's it. There is no objective truth out there. The working assumption is that there is no transcendent God who is the basis and origin of all things and whose hand is the destiny of all things. Here are some schools now that have become popular as we've moved into secularism, pragmatism. Now, if you ever hear some word... It's probably pretty good until you put an ism on the end of it. Why? Humans are good. Not good in that day, but we want to, the sanctity of human life. That's a good thing. Humanism is not. Alright? Even we can go down the the, the the avenues of creationism, and you can go start getting outside of the biblical text. When you put an ism on it, it usually goes bad. So here we go, pragmatism, it restricts the meaning of a proposition of the value of an action that, which lies on observable consequence. In other words, hey, the, uh, if it works, do it. We mentioned humanism, makes humanity the norm of all knowledge of truth, value, and being. We have relativism, pluralism existentialism, and then there's this one that I just want to briefly touch on called positivism. Positivism is an example, and it became popular in the 20th century, and I'll show how even more so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's impacted the way we think. For example, a positivist would say, to a Christian, you would say, God is love. What you're doing is is you are saying that God is something, but everything we know can only be... We only know anything based upon whether we can sense it. So how do you sense God? You say, well, he's transcendent above... Then it's a non-starter. They won't talk to you about it. And we'll see how that has impacted our thought because in the 20th century, when these philosophers started going down that road, our churches and our pastors they didn't know how to answer that. And we became very introverted and we said, "Okay, we're going to close out our walls and we're not going to go out into the world because we don't know how to talk to them." And who's them? Those who are attacking Christianity. And here, let me just talk to you a little bit about the history of it. We're going to we'll we'll we'll, we'll peel this back just a little more in a few minutes. But in the 20th century, when theologians, or let me say this, when pastors, I think it was in the 20th century, and this is just kind of my opinion, they cease to be theologians. What do I mean by that? If you were to look back at our history of our nation, of our culture, I think in Christianity you're going to find that the 20th century is probably one of the darkest times of Christianity. Why? Up to about the 20th century, really up to about the 19th century, there was dialogue that would go between pastors as theologians and philosophers and scientists, and they would talk. And they would write. And they would communicate. And they would debate. You come into the 20th century, you don't see that anymore. You don't see our clergy engaging culture and writing about it. Now, we'll write for our own magazines, and we'll write for our own periodicals, and we'll write for us, and we'll read for us, but we're not writing, and we're not distributing it out and and, and having those conversations on a wider scale. And I don't think it's going to ever change. I don't think we're ever going to get to it because of technology now. Because now we have this... This cacophony of sounds out there, even on the internet, where everybody has a blog and everybody can say anything and nobody's listening to anybody. And so now we're in this world where we are very secularized. Let me give you an example of it. Derek Bach, he was the president of Harvard University. Now he's going to talk about how they teach ethics at Harvard. But we're not going to... I want you to think if they could do this with ethical thought, think of this in theological terms. Does anybody know the oldest institution in in America? Harvard University. Our first seminary. It actually was a pretty good seminary back in 1636 when it started. All right? It's gone downhill. But Derek Bach in 1986, he wrote... This is 1986... He was the president of Harvard University and he wrote in his president's report, he wrote the following. Religious institutions no longer seem as able as they once were to impart basic values to the young. In these circumstances, universities, including Harvard, need to think hard about what they can do in the face of what many perceive as widespread decline in ethical standards. What he's saying is our religious institutions can't teach ethics anymore. And here's the reality. If they can't teach ethics, they're probably not teaching theology either, because your belief in God should determine how you behave, okay? So if they're not teaching ethics, they're probably not teaching theology. So that's why I'm putting that together, even though he uses this, the concept of ethics. Bach points out that in other days, the instructor's aim was to foster belief in commonly accepted moral values. However... Today's course in applied ethics does not seek to convey a set of moral truths, but tries to encourage the student to think carefully about complex moral issues. Just think about it, admire the problem. The principal aim of the course is not to impart right answers, but to make the students more perceptive in detecting ethical problems when they arise better acquainted with the best moral thought that has accumulated through the ages, and more equipped to reason about the ethical issues they will face. What he's saying is, we're not going to teach that there is absolute truth. We're going to teach our students just to recognize there's a problem. And then discover what can be done. That's in 1986. How then did we get to where we are? in our secular world today. In our nation, where we begin with we the people and we talk about how we have in our in our in our uh, Declaration of Independence how we have inalienable rights given to us by a creator. How did we get to where we in the 19th century were sending missionaries around the world not just individual churches, but I'm talking on a large scale how we had great awakenings. How do we get to now where we are today? How did we get here? John 18.38 is going to kick us off. John 18.38. You know the story. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate asks him if you're a king. Are you a king? And what does Jesus say? In John 18, 38, Jesus says this. Well, Pilate therefore said unto him, art thou a king then? Jesus answered, and this is verse 37, thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Jesus says, I'm here to bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And what does Pilate ask him? Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? What is truth is the question that Pilate asks. I think it would help us to understand what Pilate's asking if we understand even the culture that Pilate was in. There's not much we know about Pilate. He's got two names there Pontius, which is a title as opposed to his first name, and Pilate, which means javelin. And so he could have been, they think, had made his way up through the ranks. And he was a, he held the spear. And for some whatever reason, he makes it all the way to governor. Maybe even was his father who came up through the ranks and and passed on the lineage then to his son Pilate. But Pilate grows up in a culture where he understood that uh, Greco-Roman philosophy where uh, there is this metaphysical world that we don't really understand and we'll talk about it in a second of what Plato and, Th- and they talked but this was only this was very prevalent in their society and so he's understanding that hey there is a truth that's out there somewhere and so when pilate says what is truth knowing the roman culture pilate He may have tried to have a philosophical conversation here. But he doesn't stay around to find out an answer. It says, when he said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said, I find no fault in him at all. So how did we get here? We have been asking the same question over 2,000 years. What is truth? Our culture has been asking that. So we're going to look at some movements. Now, these, as I approach them, these are parallel. there are parallel movements throughout church history. And we're going to see them kind of touch and then drift back apart and maybe come back together a little bit and then drift apart. These movements that are they're in church history, but what I'm going to look at is we're going to pull a thread through cultural history, through cultural history. And we're going to look at and ask this question is, what is truth? And how in those different movements, in those different periods of time, did they perceive truth? And how it got us to today, where we are actually saying things like this. Well, that's my truth. Have you ever heard that statement? It's very prevalent in our our culture. That's my truth. Hey, what's your truth? My truth and your truth should be the same because it's true. But we've gotten to this point where you can have your own. I can have my own. And for a while, we had said, let's tolerate each other. But I think we're very quickly getting into now where it's you can have your truth, but if I don't like it, I will hate you for it. And I will put the hate back on you that you are intolerant of me. How do we get there? Well, in the Greco-Roman era here, or classical philosophy, which if we wanted to put it on a timeline, would probably be about 300 B.C. to 300 A.D. Now, I say 300 B.C., that's just actually, Aristotle died in 322, and so we've got these philosophers who now are being kind of widely read Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and they all came at it from this perspective that objective truth can be known or reasoned, you can know it, through some sort of correspondence to things. You say, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is what we see in the world has a corresponding truth to it in the unknown. So I asked my daughter this question tonight. The chair she was sitting on at dinner, when did it come into being? And she says, I don't know. It was here when I was born. So that is very true. When did it come? And she says, well, it's when someone made it. Well, what Aristotle, Plato were arguing about was, well, what if that chair existed in your mind before it ever existed on the earth. And they would say that chair, the concept of the chair is just as true as the chair itself. And they would argue about this. We will not tonight, we're gonna move on. But what happened is Over time, in about 300 A.D., really about 312, when Constantine declared Christianity a legal religion and instituted the Catholic Church, and uh, that's really the beginning of the Catholic Church, and ushered in the Middle Ages now, you had a man come onto the scene quite a few years later, not in 300 A.D., but quite a few years later, a servant of the church named Thomas Aquinas. And as he began to read... Aristotle and Plato, but more specifically Aristotle, as he began to read Aristotle, he was saying, now wait, there is some truth to that, that there is some sort of truth out there that might actually be uh, manifested here on the earth. And he could go to a book like Hebrews and say, hey, the, te- the tabernacle on the earth, what do we know it as? It was a what? A shadow of heavenly things. And what Thomas Aquinas said was, hey, you know, Aristotle wasn't far off. That, hey, there's this, there's this ultimate reality, and 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 he got even Aristotle would get into this idea where, hey, there actually may actually be a created being. And Thomas Aquinas saying, yeah, it was God. And while those Greeks, in that philosophy, they were little, they were far out there, but I can bring it in and I can syncretize it with Scripture. And he took it a step further and he says, objective truth now. Only the objective truth that, we, that Plato and Aristotle were saying is something out there. He was saying, yeah, that something out there is the divine. It's God, the creator of all things. And we'd say, yeah, that, that's probably right. Because before the earth existed, before he spoke it into existence, in his omniscience, he knew what was going to be here. And so the earth was real even before it was created because it was already in the mind of God. But I think where he, got, where he had a problem was when he said objective truth only corresponds to the divine, but it's only manifested then through the church. You can't know it unless the church gives you that knowledge. So the church has to give you your knowledge And you can get that knowledge through a couple ways. You can take the Eucharist, which was another form of the body of Christ, and it transformed when you took it. And he would would expound on this, on the philosophy. And he is the one who really brought into being this idea of the Middle Ages, of the church, and, and how we know what we know of objective truth. That lasted for almost a 1,000 years. The church had a handle on on knowledge, on what people knew, because it was the one who was in charge of giving it out. And if they didn't want, and, and knowledge is power, if they wanted to control you, they wouldn't give you the knowledge. Until the Renaissance of 1300s. When it was discovered, at least they thought, that objective truth can be discovered in the natural world. Hey, I don't need the church to tell me what is true. I can look around me. Leonardo da Vinci starts studying the human body. Michelangelo starts painting and he's able to take what is in the natural world and he can put it onto a, onto a canvas or onto a chapel and he can say, hey, I can, I can see truth now. I don't need the church to tell me. And that was the seed in 1517 then to where a man named Martin Luther goes and he takes 95 problems he has with the church and he says, hey, I don't need the church at all. I don't even need nature. All I need is my Bible. The just shall live by faith. And we come into the Reformation in 1500, probably the most influential event in our history outside of the cross. Because in our Western culture I'm speaking of now, from that perspective it shifted us from this idea of the church gives us all of our information to now, no, I can live by faith, I can read my Bible, I don't need the church. And in the Reformation, objective truth can only be discovered by a rational mind that is regenerated. So, in the Renaissance, they said, hey, you can come to truth. You can know what truth is by looking at nature. Your mind is part of nature, and that's where it started going. And the, and the Re- uh, Reformation said, wait, 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 wait. No, we are fallen. We are incapable of knowing truth because we, are fallen, we have fallen minds. And they said, the Reformers said, their only way you can come to objective truth is if you discover it through your thinking that has been regenerated. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If there's nothing better definition of truth than good, perfect, and acceptable will of God, that's it. That's true. And the Reformation men like Martin Luther and John Calvin began to write about how you can arrive at truth once your mind has been renewed. And I use that word mind. Please understand, I'm talking about a a rejuvenation, a born-again, a conversion experience. That's how they saw it. So that only if you were born again and your mind had been renewed can you actually know what is true. Well, not everyone bought into that. And as time went by in about 1700, the Renaissance ushers in this ability for people to read and start learning and thinking critically. And in the, in, by the 1700s, we have the Enlightenment. And there's a man who begins to think about, well, why do we exist? And the more he thought about existing, the more he realized, he thought, that the reason I exist is because I think I exist. And Rene Descartes came up with his "Cogito, ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am. And he ushered in now the enlightenment, which is object- objective truth, can be discovered simply by thinking about it. Your mind is a powerful thing to waste. You can just think. What are they doing now? The philosophers are saying, the Reformation, uh, we understand what you're saying, regenerated mind. It doesn't need to be regenerated. The mind is powerful. All we need is to think. That only lasted for about a hundred years because the more they thought about it and they said, well, objective truth just discovered through rational thought. How do we know what we're thinking? And it ushers in modernism, which says no, objective truth can only be discovered through the senses, what what you sense. You can't think about something if you've never experienced it. So the only way you can ever know anything is to experience it. I love roller coasters. But I would not know what a roller coaster is like without having experienced it. And now I know it's true. They're fun. All right? In fact, if you talk to most like my my kids, you know, they they were terrified of roller coasters. Until I, I mean, invited them on and they wrote a roller cuz i said dad that was fun yeah you experienced truth all right but that's the, the modernist mentality is well you can experience it and that's how you know until now in about 2000 the postmodern world came on i said what is postmodern well ob- modernism said objective truth can only be discovered through the senses postmodernism said okay well then, whatever you experience, whatever you sense, must be true. You say what? It's like this. I could come in here, and I could, uh, you know, we have pretty good lighting, and I could say I am wearing a blue and yellow tie. We agree. Anybody disagree? All right, we agree. Because if you disagreed, we could say, well, why do you disagree? Well, I'm colorblind. Okay, your senses are not accurate. <laughs> so you're getting a, a misread. But we could say, I have a blue and yellow tie on. Now, if I were to get up in the morning, and it's dark, and I realize i got to wear a tie, and I go and fumble through my closet, and I, I don't turn the light on because I am a very patient and uh, loving Husband, and I don't want to turn the lights on. Uh, my wife is probably laughing because I did that the other day. I turned the light on, and, well, it didn't go well. So, uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I fiddle around in my closet for a tie, and I say, this one feels like the blue and yellow tie. And I put it on. Am I wearing the blue and yellow tie? We don't know. Modernism would say, hey, <laughs> you might be, but you need to see it to be able to tell the truth. Postmodernism says, is it blue and yellow to you? And I say, yeah, it really feels like the blue and yellow tie. That's your truth then. Because objective truth is what you experience. And I could, we could argue and say, but I didn't actually experience that but did you think you experienced it? Did you experience the experience? And you go down this hole, and actually that's why if you were to go down, postmodernism is self-defeating. But it allows people to say, this is true for me, and, and I am just, this is my truth. And I used the year 2000 because it was just about three, I think, years before that. We had a president who on national TV looked at the nation and said, when he was asked a question about perjury, he said, well, what is, is? What is, is was his question. What he was asking is, how do we know what is really is? There's no objective truth. Real quickly, and we'll we'll find a place to stop here and land. I want to talk real quick about some men who influenced this. And really, we're going to start. We're not going to go all the way through each, each one of those. We're going to really start at the Enlightenment. I think if you were to look at history, the Enlightenment has influenced our nation, our culture, more than any other event. You know, it, it was influenced even by the Reformation. The Enlightenment was. But the Enlightenment has influenced us to the point that if you read our, our documents, our founding documents, you do have to read them from a a perspective that has the Enlightenment, at least in mind. Because the authors that Jefferson and and Madison and others were quoting were Enlightenment thinkers. But I think there are four thinkers who have influenced our Western way of thinking. I am not going to be able to do them justice. We're just going to hit them briefly. The first one is John Locke. John Locke. Now, I've talked about objective truth. Let me shift to knowledge. You say, well, what's the difference between objective truth and knowledge? I would like to say nothing. There's not really, because what we want to know the truth, right? What we want to know is is what is true. Well, They said, well, how do we know what we know? And John Locke, he came up with a theory. He said, well, everyone is born with this blank slate. This tabula rasa, or a blank piece of paper. And you go into life with this blank piece of paper. And when you experience something, something gets written on your piece of paper. He also had the analogy of a photo box. Not a camera, he wasn't, that exists then, but a photo box. And, And in this black box, it's empty. Just imagine this black box that's empty. And on one side of this black box is a hole. And that hole lets in light. That black box is your mind. And when light comes into it, and it captures whatever that light brings in, it imprints that on your mind, and you have an experience, and that's how you know something. What he's saying is you have no innate knowledge of anything. You are born with absolutely no knowledge at all. Where John Locke fails is that even my son, who is nine months old, when he was born, he cried. He knew how to do that. What taught him? I don't know. I didn't have the conversation with him. Uh, Maybe he was in pain, Uh, and so his response was crying. But how would he know that that hurt? We could go all night on that. But what John Locke is saying is that man is a blank piece of paper. Well, there was a guy who started, in his years, he was 1632 to 1704. Uh, there was a guy that came after him in Scotland named David Hume. And David Hume began to look at this and say, I don't know if I completely agree with that. He said, you know, we can't just say that, uh, that man is this blank page and, and has no exp- uh, and. and has no innate knowledge, uh, he says, but uh, you'd have to know to equate that with something. And he said, the way we learn is through causality. And he said, what does that mean? What he said was, the way we get knowledge is we experience it and we observe it and we tuck that into our mind and here's what he's saying. Let me give you the example he gave. Imagine billiard balls on a, on a table. And when you hit one, it hits the other. What happens to that other billiard ball? It moves. One caused the other to happen. What David Hume was saying, said was, when that happens, that billiard balls, there is no knowledge in those balls. Everything is up in your head. And the only reason you know that when that one ball hits the other ball is because it's happened before. And so he says, we actually can't know anything about the future. We can only look behind us and say, well, it's happened before, and it's more probable than not that it will happen again, but I actually don't know. I don't know if the sun's going to rise tomorrow because I've never experienced that. I do know it rose today. And the odds are, it will rise tomorrow. But I don't know that. He would go on to say, well, not only that, we don't even know if anything exists. I can't even tell you if those billard balls exist. Because there's nothing within them that says to me, you exist. He says, you know, now that I think about it, I don't even know if I exist. Because there's nothing in this world that tells me I exist. You say, well, that is depressing. <laughs> he introduces skepticism. In fact, skepticism at the time was kind of laughed at it as absurd. Just like you say, that, that doesn't make sense. And David Hume, he would even go back and he would say, he, 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 he talked once, he says, when I would leave my study and go, you know, play cards or play a game or talk to my friends, uh, I'd forget all the stuff that I had t- written about. And he says, and then I'd come back to it a couple days later and be like, man, kind of absurd. (laughs) He didn't even believe himself. And it wasn't popular in Scotland or in England at the time, but it did become popular in the 20th century, and we'll see why in in a little bit. So David Hume, man has no innate knowledge, only learns the repeated cause and effect or habit. So Immanuel Kant, though, is our next guy who he begins to look at this and says, well, David Hume, uh, it didn't make a lot of sense. But Immanuel Kant says, you know what, though, I do think we have innate knowledge. There is something that is within us that, that tells us what to do. In fact, he says, within us, we even we have moral behavior, that we know what is right and what is wrong, and, 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 and we have this innate knowledge, and we experience something, and we measure it up against, well, what is the right response or what is the wrong response? And he says, human condition has imperatives that we must live by. Now, you may look at that and say, well, that sounds pretty good. Immanuel Kant, you know, even the Bible, doesn't it say that the, the, uh, the, the law of God is written on their hearts? Yes, it does. And so we'd say, Immanuel Kant, mate, you're right on. But what Immanuel Kant got to was, he said, we have these innate behaviors, these innate abilities. Guess what? We don't need anything or anyone else to tell us what's right or wrong. It's within us. We don't need a Bible. We don't need God. We just need humans to think about doing right and wrong because it's within them, they will do it. All of a sudden, we've gone a little too far, right? Can you see the problem with that? Where now he's saying this is morally relative now, That I, I am the arbiter of truth. I'm going to do what is written within my being to do. Now, the one thing you need to understand about John Locke, David Hume, and even Immanuel Kant is they were all writing, thinking, and living in a world where it was assumed that there was a God. And it was assumed that the Christian religion was true. But then comes George Hegel, who looks at these moral imperatives that says man is innate with certain knowledge. And he says, you know, I don't think so. He said, what we need to look at it is like this, where when something happens, we have an event. Well, let me say it like this. When you got in your car tonight and you drove here, how did you know which way to go? Anybody still driving to church with GPS? All right. It usually takes me two years and I figure out, you know. But, uh, you know, you, 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 how'd you know? You got in your car, you were the person who needed to know something, or you, you were the person who was the knower, you needed to know something, and there was knowledge that needed to be known. And Hegel says, I want to know what that connection is. How do people that know something need to know something and the knowledge that needs to be known, what joins them together? And he came up with this. He said, there's the thesis. I am the knower. There's the direction I need to go. That is what needs to be known. There is That's the antithesis. I'm the knower. I am personal. I'm a person. The, the route to church is not. It's just a... It's inanimate. It's just something out there. It's a concept. So it's inanimate. I am a person that lacks personhood, so I am the thesis. That is the antithesis. We come together, the person who needs to know, and that knowledge comes together, and they form a synthesis. And here's what he said. That truth is now something that joins with something else and becomes another truth and joins with something else and becomes another truth And he says, life is more about a process of discovering a new truth all the time. And the danger with that is this. He uses the analogy of a a blossom on a tree that grows into a fruit. He said, you know, there's a bud. And then pretty soon that bud gives way to a blossom. And after a while, the blossom gives way to a piece of fruit. And he said it was never wrong to be a bud, but that really wasn't the fruit of that. Wasn't what was meant for that tree in its entirety. To be the fruit, then it dies, and then it repeats the process. And he says when it comes to discovering truth, it's just a process in life. You learn something, you synthesize, it becomes your truth, and you can have you join with something else, and it becomes another truth. And he said there is no absolute truth. Hegel has influenced our thinking. You say, I've never heard of Hegel. No, you haven't. But here's where he's influenced our thinking, and we're done. He was a German, and he influenced our seminaries in Germany. And those seminaries in Germany influenced our seminaries in the United States in the 20th century. And not just our seminaries, but our colleges. And what we have now in our postmodern thought, when we now go and evangelize and tell people about God, the God of the Bible, we are now, at least in my experience out in the world, we are wading through so much baggage of what they've been taught in public institutions that we are almost like two ships passing in the night. We're not even connecting with each other. Because I'm using terminology that I grew up in my church hearing on repentance, on salvation, on things, and I'm using a Bible that that, uh, uh, I'll, I'll share with them, chapter and verse, and they don't even believe. Not just the Bible, but they don't even believe the God of the Bible. Now, Where are we going to go in this this class? We're going to look to say, how do we break through those barriers but not compromise the truth of the Bible? Because my whole point in tonight was discovering where is truth? Objective truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We have to point them to Jesus. That is the truth. But they have to come to Jesus not on their terms, but on his. But what I've just painted for you is the baggage that we are dealing with in our culture, in our world. Even as I talked, some of the things I said, you kind of resonated with and said, you know what, that kind of makes sense. Oh, wait, what if we take it to this next conclusion? Philosophy sneaks in. It's in our thinking. It's in the way we do things. And so next week we'll say, well, what do we do about it? And we'll start really looking into how we handle apologetics. Uh, as Like I said, tonight was bleak. We live in a pretty bleak world, but we have the answer. And it will wrench them out of this world, and it will give them a new relationship with Christ. We only got through the first two points there. We'll pick up next week. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life.